This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. The world has seen some amazing military leaders here in the United States. You would no doubt include people like Norman Schwarzkopf, George Patton, Dwight Eisenhower, and of course, George Washington. Going back in history, there are other great ones like Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, and one written about by Stanford University's Patrick Hunt, that being Hannibal Bartha, uh, or Hannibal as most people refer to him. Uh, the book that Patrick has written is titled by that same name, Hannibal, and Patrick joins us here on the show right now. Patrick, great to have you with us. Great to be here. Thank you. Uh, I've mentioned this on the show. I am a bit of a history buff, uh, more so American history and military. So this was a, a tad outside my realm. But but take us into uh, doing a book about Hannibal and, and tell us more about him as to why he was considered to be such a great military leader. Well, thanks. And he's really an enigma, too, because here's a guy who wins almost every battle except the last one. Here's a guy who is enormously capable of wonderful tactics that uh, totally strike fear into the heart of his enemy, right. surprising reversals. But uh, he doesn't win the war. And, you know, I think we can say, and, and I, I know for the knowledge of Wharton audience, I hope this is something that everyone will grasp, all history in my, my whole purview is economic history. Mm-hmm. Bottom line is ultimately everything. And Hannibal was successful until his silver ran out. The Spanish silver from the Spanish silver mines, once the Romans took those silver mines and stopped that flow of his supply chain, Hannibal's military intelligence dried up. He could no longer find out and exploit the weaknesses of his enemies because right. he didn't have enough uh, dirt on them, as it were. And uh, Hannibal uh, was considered, even when you read Machiavelli's The Prince, Machiavelli goes into lengthy detail surrounding Hannibal's circumstances, how he was both a fox and a lion, stealthy but also strong. And yet, uh, when you hear that famous phrase that it's better to be loved, it's better to be feared than loved, uh, Hannibal might have preferred to be, uh, sometimes by his own men, loved and feared. But Hannibal is the actual story of, about which Machiavelli is writing. Uh, so people, people don't always realize that, that uh, Hannibal struck fear into the hearts of Rome, the fear of Hannibal at the gates. And Hannibal went with his father, Hamilcar, at a very early age, between nine and ten, to Spain from Carthage and saw how much silver was coming out of those mines, which was needed not only to pay off the war debt from the first Punic War that the Carthaginians lost, kind of the same circumstances. They won almost every battle but the last one. And uh, interesting, Carthage was run as a mercantile society. A council of elders were more merchants. And for them, like it should be in history, you know, uh, economics is bottom line. As I said, I think all history is economic history. And Hannibal, with his father, built up a war chest in Spain to take the war back to Rome, the Second Punic War, called Hannibal's War. Hannibal could buy his uh, – he had a huge spy network through that Spanish silver. And 
when you think about it, uh, you don't need a financial algorithm here. It's plain as day. Uh, Hannibal's successes ran out when he could no longer uh, purchase uh, grain, purchase food, when he had to depend upon just burning and looting, when he had to, uh, instead of being able to buy things at Spanish silver, uh, Hannibal uh, suddenly was no longer successful. Well, let, let's let me t- take you back uh, for a second because, as you mentioned, uh, he and his father, uh, if if I heard you correctly, went to to what is now Spain. As Hannibal was at a, at a very young age, what was it that that drew them to go there in the first place? Well, that's fascinating too because Hannibal was a very successful general in the First Punic War, and then when that war was over, reluctantly because he felt that Carthage threw in the towel too early. Uh, he came back and put down some uh, revolts, uh, some mercenary revolts. There's the other point, mercenary. Most of the Carthaginian army was paid. It was mercenary, and that's very unusual. They didn't have a high population density uh, like other places, including the archenemy Rome. Uh, Their soldiers had to be paid. And again, uh, you know, you, you have a lot of soldiers who might be fighting for loot booty, too, but... Hannibal uh, goes with his father to Spain. Hamilcar Barca, his father, goes to Spain because the uh, Council of Elders there in Carthage are very uncomfortable with this successful, charismatic general, Hannibal's father, around. And whether we don't know for sure whose idea it was, but when he takes off for Spain uh, to help run the colony there, uh, the Council of Elders, the Gerusi at Carthage, is thrilled to get uh, this potential, yeah. maybe even dictator, out of the way. Well, and you mentioned uh, as well, and, and not that his father was a fan of the Roman Empire in any way, shape, or form, uh, the fact that at this period of time, uh, it truly is one of the periods of strength of the Roman Empire. And when you look at a map, uh, Carthage, which is now Tunisia, how close it was to Italy oh. and, and really the, the, the core of the Roman Empire. Exactly. You know, if you, and, I, and of course, National Geographic, uh, who supported quite a bit of my research, and I'm one of their expedition experts, has sent me to Carthage. And it's only 100 miles from Cape Bone, uh, just outside Tunis, to Cape Lilibium of Sicily. Only 100 miles, and that was way too close for comfort. And everybody will remember the later anecdote of, of Cato, who holds up a ripe fig in the Senate and says, this came from Carthage, and it's still edible, two days away. That's how uncomfortably close Carthage was to Rome. What was his relationship with his men? As you mentioned, it, 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 it could be uh, kind of fractured at times. Sure. Well, uh, as, as I said, uh, the idea that he can be pretty intimidating, you know uh, he's going to be brutal towards the enemy, so you better not cross him, even his own men. But he was charismatic enough and a dedicated leader who did not accrue personal wealth through his campaigns. He distributed very fairly. And to make matters even more uh, important for leadership, he endured the same hardships as his men. He literally would lie down on the ground with a cold, hard ground with a blanket and sleep with them. Uh, go ahead. I think that's really impressive. One of the battles that uh, that he is associated with uh, is in Italy, uh, the Battle of Cannae. 
Oh, yeah. Uh, and that was apparently one of his more effective uh, periods uh, of his career, correct? Exactly. Exactly. Uh, should I expound a bit? Yes, please. Yeah, well, you know, Hannibal uh, exploited at every battle where he could the two-consul command that Rome had. One of the commanders was always a military veteran, and on alternating days, the next day would be a political appointee as a consul. <laughs> and Hannibal always found out what he could about the other opponent, got into his mind literally. And this opponent at Cannae, Terentius Varro, uh, was someone who, uh, again, uh, was hasty, impetuous. Hannibal knew how to draw him out. Hannibal always chose the battle site first, reconnoitered, scouted it out, learned the topography, checked out the terrain, chose the best spot. And one of the things that Hannibal did at that battle, uh, that time of year in August, and I've endured it myself, even in the Mediterranean and around Sicily and in Italy, there are big sandstorms that can blow out of the Sahara mm -hmm. Desert right. from the south. And Hannibal chose his position carefully. He boxed the Romans in with their almost 80,000 men, 70,000 on the field. And he boxed them in in a, in a valley where they couldn't outflank him because there's the river, the Alphidus River on one side and the hills on the other. And he compressed them into this box. And, of course, he had the advantage of cavalry. Uh, the, the Romans never got it until after Hannibal how important a mobile cavalry is. So yeah. The Romans, with far more men outnumbering them, maybe two to one in many, many cases, almost like here, could outflank Hannibal if they had the space. Hannibal wouldn't let them do that. And he, he, he made this guy, Varro, come to battle when the other general, the military veteran, Emilius Paulus, said, no, don't do it. We're not ready. Mm -hmm. So Hannibal uh, primes uh, the battle scene, gets a premature uh, Roman army who's not terribly trained, uh, a lot of recruits, and then he very successfully using the sand in their eyes. The sand is blowing in the Roman army's eyes because right. they're facing south. And he has some of his soldiers on his two sides, right and left, kind of almost disguised like Romans because they took so much armor from right. previous battles at Trebia and at Trazi Men. They even looked like Romans. And Hannibal does this thing. He has this bulge at the first part of the battle, and his Balearic slingers, using slingshots, take out the real general, Paulus, with a, a, face, a face wound. He's bleeding profusely. He's out of commission. And so everything's dependent on this political appointee, Terentius Varro. And Hannibal makes the army chase him into this box. Mm -hmm. So he pulls back in the center, leaving his two sides out there, and the Romans come in, move in, move in, move in, until they're surrounded on three sides, and, they, and the wind with the dust in their faces, maybe they didn't even realize that the two flanks of Hannibal are, are actually not their own men. And then at a command, uh, was three sides box in, Hannibal's cavalry, who's chased the Roman horsemen totally off the field, and Terentius Varro had fled the battle completely. So the Roman soldiery is leaderless. And Hannibal closes that box on all four sides with his returned cavalry. And the, the heavy, heavy 
uh, compressed Roman army can really only fight on the outside of that box. Right. They're so close together in the middle, they can't even raise their weapons. And Hannibal just butchers 55,000 Roman soldiers. Hmm. We're joined by uh, Patrick Hunt, who is the author of the book Hannibal. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. I, I, I guess if you were to take, and you've spoken glowingly about his tactics and, and a variety of different elements uh, to him, if you were uh, to bring him forward uh, into the realm of, of what we've known as war since, you know, really since uh, World War II on, how, how, where would he fit in terms of being an effective general? Excellent question. I think that uh, he's been so carefully studied around the world. Even today, you teach Hannibal in, in the military uh, colleges. I speak uh, uh, often at the U.S. Naval War College uh, uh -huh. uh, there uh, in Newport in Rhode Island. And you wouldn't believe how many officers high-line officers come to hear about how did Hannibal do this? What are his tactics? And you, as you mentioned at the outset, well done with Patton and Schwarzkopf. I actually knew one of the military attaches for Schwarzkopf, uh, and uh, Schwarzkopf believed that Hannibal's tactics, like the famous Hannibal double envelopment, were important. Yeah. And you know this whole idea? We often you know, remember not all so fondly the German blitzkrieg, Sure. Well, that yeah. was probably a maneuver adapted from Hannibal. The lightning quick move to come in and you have to move fast, but you move effectively and you do your recon first. Uh, the, the name uh, Barca, his, his family name, clan name Barca, actually means lightning strike. So it's huh. very, very likely that uh, the, the early historians following Clausewitz. And, you know, Napoleon, too, loved Hannibal. In fact, Napoleon hedged his bets, and he went over at least four alpine passes to make sure he followed in Hannibal's footsteps. There was right. even an engraving that Napoleon had made where one of his soldiers with a saber is scratching on a rock the people who've gone before uh, Napoleon, of course, Hannibal Barca is one of them. And, you know, I mentioned, Dan, that, that, that all history is economic history, yes. that bottom line is everything. I may be one of the few historians who really take that seriously, but, but we have to chase grants uh, to support our archaeological sure. field work. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And, and we know, I mean, money doesn't grow on trees. And so, uh, as, I, as, I, as I mentioned, uh, and, uh, you know, people think that literature... Uh, uh, is important, but what we forget in the history of writing, writing was invented not for literature, but for accounting. Hmm, accounting yeah. comes first. Long, thousands of years, accounting comes. People scratching in ledgers. You can see that the numeracy came long before literacy. And, and if you're applying Hannibal to modern-day history, modern-day battles, right. it, it is intriguing to me that uh, everyone recognizes how brilliant his tactics were, how he could thoroughly take an enemy and surprise them and then strike fear into them, paralyzing them with the fear in the pit of the stomach. But again, if you don't have the financial resources to carry on a war, to sustain it for years, 
if you can't count on the people back home supporting it, right. if you can't count on a supply line that, that keeps your soldiers paid, forget it. Well, and that ends up being kind of the interesting kind of twist at the end of the story of Hannibal is the fact that, as you mentioned earlier, uh, he was so successful, uh, loses the Battle of Zama as his last war, and, and a few years after that is exiled because I guess the, the people of Carthage were like, y you lost. We, why do yeah. we want you anymore? That's right. And they even tried to kind of ship him off to Rome. Uh, intriguingly, the rest of Hannibal's life is in exile. Guess what he is? A mercenary. Yeah, yeah. He has to yeah. hire himself out to try to foment rebellion against Rome, to Macedon, to Bithynia. Yeah. Uh, and his life is sort of a sad story. It's a tragic story. It's an enigma. Uh, this is a man who never gave up fomenting uh, trouble for Rome. Uh, but again, he has to have the resources to do it. There's another funny story about Hannibal. When he fled Carthage, he got tipped off that they were going to take him away. He fled to the island of Crete. Mm -hmm. And this funny story is that the Cretans knew he had wealth with him. Well, you store your wealth in a temple, and you put it there where it's safe. Well, they, the Cretans tried to get into that temple and steal his wealth. And guess what he had done? He'd hidden most of the money in his villa buried in the ground, and what was in the temple were just these big clay pots with just a little <laughs> bit of silver on the top, and everything underneath a few inches was just garbage. You know, it, it is amazing. I've got about a minute left, but when you think about this piece of history and how strong the Roman Empire was, uh, there weren't too many generals that could match up with the Roman Empire at that time like, like, uh, like Hannibal could. No, and, he, and Rome had endless manpower, and they were sure, never yeah. going to throw in the towel. Yeah. Uh, it's a great book, uh, Patrick. Thank you very much for your time today. Greatly appreciate it. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your show. No, thank you very much, sir. Um, the book is Hannibal by Patrick Hunt, uh, as we mentioned, uh, who teaches at Stanford University. The book is uh, out now and available in bookstores. And if you're a history buff like uh, I am, uh, it is a very, very good read uh, to learn a little bit more going back in time. Uh, the book Hannibal by Patrick Hunt. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.